You're listening to Monday Science Podcast, the show that brings you the latest in science, technology and health with your host, me, Dr. Bahija Raimi Abraham. Hello, welcome back to Monday Science. We have a very interesting episode coming up. A little bit nervous about the topic, but anyway, um, I hope you're having a great start to the week. Let's get started with today's episode. So our Monday Science Person of the Week goes to Professor Chan Eng Heng, a retired professor from a university in Malaysia, who is a turtle conservationist who was recognized by the United Nations Environment Programme for her efforts to save and protect sea turtles. Uh, she has had a significant impact on turtle conservation in, in Malaysia. Um, where she co-founded and led the Sea Turtle Research Unit. Her work and research has also led to the establishment of protected fishing areas to protect leatherback turtles during nesting periods. That is amazing. She uh, pushed for the establishment of turtle sanctuaries, which was granted after 12 years of lobbying, and for a ban on commercial egg production. She also ran annual turtle camps for 13 years in an effort to educate children on turtle conservation. In 2020, she won a lifetime award from the International Sea Turtle Society. So congratulations, Professor Henk. Um, and uh, in our quick news, so a study that was led by researchers from the University of Oxford has shown that blood clot risk from COVID-19 is higher than after vaccines. So you've probably seen in the news, there's been several discussions about cl uh, blood clots following use, um, following uh, having or taking the covid vaccine. Um, and there's also been conversations around the blood clot risk in oral contraceptives as well. But anyway, so University of Oxford have investigated this. And uh, so they have compelling evidence on why people should continue getting vaccinated despite the current concerns about extremely rare blood clots following vaccination. The researchers used a database of electronic medical records of patients based primarily in America to determine the risk of the rare and deadly blood clots called cerebral venous sinus thrombosis after vaccination versus uh, COVID-19 infection. Of the 513,284 COVID-19 patients identified in the database, 20 developed uh, this thrombosis within two weeks after the diagnosis. This is compared to two out of 489,871 patients who received an mRNA vaccine uh, and developed the thrombosis. And the European Medicines Agency's latest estimate for the risk of the thrombosis associated with AstraZeneca vaccine is uh, about five per one million. So um, I hope that helps <laughs> to clarify things for people. Okay, so on to today's episode. This is episode 76 and it's a listener question. So uh, responding to a listener question um, and I'm going to play, it was actually a voice note, so I'm going to play that shortly. But essentially they're asking, why do we only see positive results published? Oh, it's going to be interesting. So why don't I let you listen to that and then we're going to get stuck in. Hi Monday Science. I just wanted to ask, um, why is it that we are taught as science students that non-results within scientific research are still results and contribute to our overall knowledge but we don't really see a lot of non-results um, and really that mentality being reflected in publications in academia? Thank you. Okay, so let's unpack this. Okay, why do we not see 
non-results published. So why do we only see positive results published in um, science? Can you tell I'm a little bit nervous to talk about this? But anyway, uh, let's progress. Okay, so essentially this is down to publication bias. So publication bias is the tendency um, on the parts of investigators, researchers, reviewers and editors to submit or accept manuscripts for publication based on the direction or strength of the findings. Um, publication bias is an unfortunate bias that occurs in published academic research. I don't know if I can fully say even academic, just research in general. Um, and essentially with publication bias, you get to see positive results published or they have a better chance of being published. They tend to be published earlier and are published in results with higher impact factors. And um, therefore, you know, conclusions exclusively based on published results and published studies may be, may be uh, misleading. You can really tell I'm nervous about this conversation. <laughs> um, so this isn't a new or recent issue. So as early as 1959, there was an article written by uh, Sterling, and I do talk about this a little bit later on, which described the potential threat of bias uh, towards statistically significant results for fields that rely on frequentist statistics, um, and that it was possible that the literature in these fields consisted largely of false conclusions. So yeah, as mentioned, this isn't a new thing. Uh, there's a Another article written in 1993, I mean, there have been several, but I'm just highlighting a couple, um, by Dixon and Min, which highlights that the title is Publication Bias, the Problem That Won't Go Away. So that was even in 1993. It's been cited many times over, uh, over 400 times. And they defined publication bias as the failure to publish the results of a study on the basis of the direction or strength of the study findings. Generally, it's a result of withholding negative results or results that don't fit in with the grain of the thoughts of that field or the findings of that field. And this can lead to excessive positive results. And you see this also in certain fields where, so for example, in um, one of my research areas, solid dispersions, which is a technology that's used to improve the solubility of poorly water-soluble drugs. And you can often see lots of po uh, positive results saying, oh, solid dispersions are great. They they really do improve um, the solubility of poorly water-soluble drugs when you're looking at in vitro um, studies. But then there's poor in vivo correlation. Um, as well. So how amazing can they actually be? How amazing can this technology actually be um, in improving poorly, poorly water-soluble drugs? Um, there is also in that area the issue around um, in vivo, in vitro correlation, but generally speaking, it can't be that the technology is so amazing that all you're seeing is positive results. I feel like I'm rubbishing my field, oh dear. Uh, but anyway, so you know, many positive results reported from studies with also like small sample size, method methodological limitations and null findings that have been reported. Um, and there's also this thing about, you know, a natural human desire to find positive results to support one's own beliefs and one's own work. There was an editorial article that was published in March 2019 in Nature Human Behaviour and it was titled The Importance of No Evidence and this highlighted how publication bias threatens the ability of science to self-correct and the need to change how null or negative findings are perceived and offer incentives for their publication and this is you know from um, journals and so in the editorial article they actually ended with the following statement um, at Nature 
future human behaviour, we welcome the submission of studies reporting null or negative findings, provided that they address an important question of broad significance and are methodologically highly robust. So why does this happen? There are a number of reasons. And to be honest, I don't even know if anybody knows why this happens. Um, I think there's, as I mentioned just before, there is this, maybe this quote unquote issue of the trends in the field. Uh, there's also past experience and I say past experience which also ties into like the trends in the field so if a supervisor um, a PI pr a principal investigator of a group has worked in a certain area and has always seen or in their work has expected a certain trend and a certain um, result so then it's an expectation perhaps that the work that comes out from that group will have a certain trend or a certain sort of um trajectory and how in their findings in a particular area. There can also be competing commitments. There's um, maybe some conflicts, <laughs> financial conflicts, conflicts of interest. Um, maybe also, you know, a perceived or real, well, I guess a perceived or real lack of interest in results from editors, reviewers or other colleagues. Um, and I mentioned already, I'll just mention again, conflicts of interest, which could also lead to suppression of results not aligned with a specific agenda. There is also um, a location bias. So location meaning the um, type of evidence that you're finding in in published, uh, pre you know, prestigious journals versus in less, pre less prestigious journals and grey literature. And grey literature is um, used to describe a wide range of different information that's published outside of traditional publishing and distribution channels um, and is often not well represented in indexing database. So what does this mean for research? And I, and I want to talk about this because this is, um, and when I say researchers, um, I'm talking about from uh, PhD researchers, postdoctoral um, researchers and, you know, academics like group leaders, lecturer, senior lecturer, professor, all those. Lot. Um, and I think it's important to note that publications are, you know, important regardless of level for people's academic careers. You know, it's part of the KPIs, key performance indicators in um, academia. Let's focus on that. And so it's quite difficult because, you know, you need to publish papers um, and, and there is this requirement at, at all different levels. And so, as I mentioned before, um, you can have a situation where somebody's been working in a field and they have an expectation of a certain pattern or trend to be observed. And when you have, let's say, um, a new PhD researcher who's joining a group who maybe has never worked on a topic before, and so they're told maybe to repeat or follow on experiments from a previous PhD researcher or a postdoc, and then they're finding their results are, because especially if you're not in the field, you don't know. So you're just like, oh, this is interesting data. This is what I found. And then you have instances where they may be told, oh, that doesn't, that's not, that's not quite right. That's not what we're expecting. And then the, the researcher, regardless of, you know, PhD or, or postdoc might be like, oh, but this is what I found. And it's like, yeah, but that's not aligned with what we find. <laughs> and then you have this question about research integrity, which I'm not going to talk about today. But it, you know, really boils down to um, people feeling that if they submit predominantly positive results, it's more likely to be published uh, or considered for publication. And so therefore, there's this pressure to find positive results, which can lead to false positives, inflated estimations. And also, again, this sort of feeling that if you publish more 
uh, if you find have more po uh, positive results, it's likely or more likely to be published in higher impact factor papers and therefore to be cited, which then leads to can lead to bias in uh, research. So what is the impact or the effect on research and researchers? Um, so it can be, you know, wasteful uh, for research efforts. Um, if a certain narrative of publication is expected to be published, i.e., you know, positive results, if the findings aren't positive, then and then someone's told to repeat their experiments to get the quote unquote desired outcome, then of course that's a waste of, of research efforts. Um, it limits the evidence available for policymakers and stakeholders. In biomedicine, for example, false positives can put patients at risk. And it may cause studies to be repeated several times as researchers are not aware that a null result has been found. So let's talk about null results. So a null result is essentially an experimental outcome which does not show an otherwise expected effect. Uh, this does not imply a result of zero or nothing, but that's sometimes how people view it, but simply a result that doesn't support the starting hypothesis. So I found a really funny article. Um, well, I say funny, it's not funny, haha. -ha, <laughs> well, it is a little bit funny, haha, -ha, but it's interesting and funny, like with some humor. And it's titled, When Scientists Find Nothing, The Value of Null Results, which was, um, it's in an uh, inside science. I've put a lot of these references in the episode description and it was published last year. Um, the section, there was a section, congratulations, you found nothing, <laughs> which highlighted um, a reason that null results often don't get shared and which is that compared to positive results, their importance is hard to judge intuitively. A null result is more difficult to interpret than positive results. So for a positive result, the null hypothesis is rejected and evidence of an effect can be claimed. Whereas with a null result is simply failure to reject the null hypothesis due to insufficient evidence of an effect or no effect. And so some studies have very low statistical power, which means that they expect a large number of studies to have null findings despite there being an actual effect. Poor methodology and design can lead to null results being harder to interpret. Reviewers have also been found to judge the methods and quality of null um, studies more critically than those of positive studies. There have been quite a few studies to support this, but one of the original papers, it's a very old um, study, um, in 19, published in 1977, it's had over a thousand citations. The title of the article, Publication Prejudices, an Experimental Study of Confirmatory Bias in the Peer-Reviewed System. And in this study, they randomly assigned referees to review one of five versions of, of a manuscript, all with identical introduction and method section, but different results and discussion sections, positive, negative methods only, mixed results with positive discussion, mixed results with negative discussion. The methods, data, uh, presentation, scientific contribution and publication merits of manuscripts with positive results were rated as being nearly twice as high as manuscripts with negative results. And now onto the other elephant in the room <laughs> and the, and maybe the one of the reasons suggested for why people tend to publish positive results is down to funding um, and grant funding. Well, I say grant funding, just any form of funding. Um, so just as a reminder, and I've talked about this in previous episodes, and we even had uh, one of our guests, uh, Dr. Tina Joshi, where we talked about grant funding and, and publications. Um, so Generally speaking, um, for science, uh, well, sorry, I shouldn't be so specific to science, but for research, you gain funding from agencies, the government, institute foundations, or even private com companies. 
Um, and so you write a proposal um, of various different lengths <laughs> and um, you request, you know, you say put in your proposal evidence of prelimin preliminary data to support the work that you're trying to propose, um, evidence that you can, you and your team can, um, you know, carry out the work and so forth. And so there's a feeling that proposals have to show strong evidence that everything is going to work, unless you're not going to get funding for something that won't work, but that could lead to good understanding in an area. I remember having discussions quite a while ago, many years ago, um, and it was talking about how risk averse different countries were to um, when it comes to funding. And the suggestion that the UK is very risk averse um, and, you know, so generally speaking in the UK, it's government funding from um, research council, um, charities. And so the feeling that in particular for funding, to obtain funding in the UK, it's got to be low risk. I mean, majority of funding. I think there's some funding pools that you want to be high risk um, projects. But generally speaking, it was this thought that in the UK, the in terms of being able to secure funding it's got to you've got to have strong evidence that it's going to work and then the suggestion that in america because of having or because of the way in which funding is distributed also you can get large donations from various different people um and organizations that they tend to be less risk averse so um more willing to support um, ideas that have very little chance of working but could lead to good understanding that was the conversation I remember having I don't know how true that is it would be very good to have more um, understanding of funding in various parts of the world um, but in the article that I mentioned earlier uh, when scientists find nothing the value of null results they mainly focused on discoveries in physics and they had quotes from a particle physicist and astrophysicist from Princeton University called uh, his name is Peter Myers. And on funding, he said, as science progresses, experiments tend to get more expensive, which is so true. And it's hard to justify, say, a $10 trillion experiment and say, we're just going to explore and maybe we won't find anything. It's hard to look somebody in the eye and say that. Whereas if it's for, let's say, $1,000, you can. So I guess that's given insight from the American perspective. Um, it would be great to have more pots of pots of money that allow for let's just let's just sort of explore and and have less limitation on quote unquote I don't want to say quote unquote success but you know of of a certain output what if we're just trying to explore more explorative funding and yes I do agree um, with uh, with the quote that of course you don't want to waste public funds you don't want to waste anybody's funds it would be great to have more funding opportunities that are more, you know, explorative in nature and just, you know, let's just explore. We may not find anything, but we would be able to contribute more in a particular area. And obviously, we have to remember that when we're looking at research costs, I don't want to go off on a tangent about funding <laughs> again, but when we're talking about research costs, we're talking about cost of staff, we're talking about materials, you know, um, and so the difference in materials cost and potential payoff for different experiments could make some of them more of a gamble than others you know um, and so also when we're talking about so we talk about grants then let's go back to the publication process now some people feel that peer review is part of the issue um, and we're going to talk about that but I, I, I'm in full support of peer review um, because there is a reason for the for having peer review. It helps to identify any issues with work. This is my personal opinion, but I know that yes, there are some 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 challenges with that, and we're going to talk about that um, as well. And and there is a suggestion that you know the peer review system 
contributes to this publication bias. Um, as you may have figured out already, I'm quite, quite fascinated by retractions. And I did talk about the publication process in a re recent episode. That was episode 70, talking about COVID retractions. Um, but on the subject of peer review system and publication bias. So there's a feeling that in the pre-publication stage, reviewers decide, they're the ones that decide if findings are valid and data supported. And um, a suggestion that editors prefer results that show support for tested hypotheses over results with inconclusive or null findings. There's also the file drawer problem. Um, where non-positive results remain in an author's file drawer. Uh, yeah, I think we all have that <laughs> experience. Um, and then also looking at post-publication, you know, we talk about impact citations and things like that. So I want to give some examples, um, and these are quite recent examples of where studies have investigated or highlight the influence of publication bias and impact. There was a recent study that explored um, new generation antidepressants and suicide links. So the title of the paper is Suicide Risk with Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors and Other New Generation Antidepressants in Adults, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Observational Studies. And this was published in the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health uh, this sometime this year. And so this study concluded that exposure to new generation antidepressants is associated with higher suicide risk in adult routine care patients with depression and other treatment indications. Publication bias and financial conflict of interest likely contributes to systematic under underestimation of the risk in published literature. So this was stated because other studies have found that changes in suicide rates in multiple countries did not correspond to antidepressant usage if antidepressant use is to decrease suicide risk. And these findings were most likely due to use of randomized controlled trials where uh, they were deliberately excluding those already already experiencing suicidality. And so observation studies from real or from people, you know, in real life clinical practice may provide better results in this instance. Other meta-analysis found studies funded by pharmaceutical companies were more likely to find positive results, i.e. low suicide rates or no effect, than independently funded researchers, um, so where they found doubled suicide rates. And several studies with evidence of higher suicide risks with antidepressants likely remain unpublished. Another recent example was looking at vitamin D and COVID-19, and this was an editorial in the BMJ earlier on this year as well. And so in this editorial article, it was claimed that vitamin D had protective effects against acute respiratory infections. However, the trials were conducted in children between the ages of 1 and 16 years old, but the results generalized uh, the findings to the whole public. And so statistically significant reduction in risk were reported. And so um, a lot of journals, well, every journal, I believe, have where you publish an article and then you can have a response, like an editorial response to it. So there was uh, this was these this issue was highlighted in rapid responses to the published articles um, where they were saying, well, actually, you can't generalize um, the findings because the studies that you, the initial article were referring to were only in children. Uh, again, I've put the link in the episode description is really an interesting um there were 11 responses to the article that sort of highlight that actually these findings can't really be extrapolated to the whole population talking of which actually i came across um a 
post-publication peer review website. It's called PubPeer. And it's a website that allows users to discuss and review public, uh, scientific research after publication. The site has served as a whistleblowing platform in which it highlights shortcomings to several high profile papers. You can also Google, well, sorry, I keep saying Google in place of searching. You can search your name or put your articles to see if anybody has questioned um, them. Thankfully, nobody's questioned my papers so far, but maybe they're not high profile enough. Who knows? <laughs> um, and so my favorite platform, Retraction Watch, also um, have discussed this website and so it's quite interesting on PubPeer because people can submit their comment comment like their commentary on an article um, anonymously as well but when they are um, posting any comments on a paper they have to make sure that there's you know evidence and it's got to be verified as well so that's quite an interesting platform that I've recently discovered peer what did I call it PubPeer PubPeer um, okay so there are some initiatives to try and reduce publication bias um, and these have largely been for medicine um, science uh, systematic reviews and clinical trials so for example you've got public sources for mandatory registration of, of trial protocols that's clinicaltrials.gov and others then there's also guidelines for reporting of procedures and results that's the Equator Network network um, and you know a push to try and publish study protocols um, then from a publication the publication side of things so the BMC psychology they launched a pilot to trial a new results free peer review process um, and this was the first specialist uh, journal to do so and so they ran a pilot to trial their results free review process from 2016 to 2020 in addition and so this was alongside and in addition to the journal's peer review system the trial is now closed but the journal um, has chosen to operate using a transparent peer review process which we'll talk about in a bit and so during the trial authors of research articles could opt in um, at submission for their article or sorry for their manuscript to be included in this results free peer review process um, and they have a link on their website with all the collections that brings together the articles um, from from this um, I've put all of that in the episode description so what is a results free peer review process so it's a model for peer review where editors and reviewers are blinded to the results it happens in two stages stage one you have the review of the manuscript excluding any results or discussion of the results then in stage two if accepted following stage one, there's a review of the complete manuscript to check the results and the conclusions and make sure that they do not deviate unjustifiably from the research question and methodology. So how does this differ to normal peer review? So they say that all aspects of the peer review process are the same ex with the exception of uh, stage one, including the questions for reviewers, criteria for publication and expected turnaround times. Okay. What I find interesting is after the trial, um, the journal have now stated that they're going to use the transparent peer review process, which is where the, if the article is published, uh, the reviewers reports are published alongside the article under Creative Commons license, but the reviewer is not named. And the benefit of this transparent peer review is that it increases transparency. In addition, published reports can serve as an educational purpose in helping to facilitate training and research into peer review. But I find it interesting that they didn't choose to continue the results free 
review method, I did have a look to see how many papers were published. And, and I'm for four, a four-year period, the number of papers that were published via this peer uh, results fee, results-free peer review process were quite small. I would suggest, I would guess. So maybe that's why it wasn't taken up. Um, so a follow-up question to the listener question, actually, which was provided as a text, which is, um, why is it that we are taught to students that non-results within scientific research are still results, but why do we not see that mentality reflected in academia and publications? It's a very loaded question. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know when publication bias starts. And I think this is, I'm probably going to have to ha have somebody come on the podcast to talk about it. Maybe somebody who researches, uh, who's in the meta science field, because, you know, when does it start? I mean, we've had a discussion today about sort of the different facets to publication bias, but when does it start, really? Um, maybe it's it's as a result of various different pressures, as I've talked about, and maybe not wanting to go against the grain. This is definitely an area that needs to be discussed a lot more. And I think I'm going to look at who else I can get to come and help me <laughs> answer this question, because I, I think today I've probably given information as to possible reasons why it could happen but I unfortunately don't have any solutions because when you unpack this topic it's very it's deep-seated it's deep-rooted and you can see that it's generational as well um, and journals are trying people are trying to change um, or well, well I guess to support the publishing of quote-unquote negative results or no results but it's also quite difficult because if that's the system if that's the way people are trained at some point to publish I think it's quite difficult to go against the grain so yeah I feel like I've I've provided more questions than answers but I, I hope that by unpacking some of the areas that contribute to publication bias this can at least start some further discussion we need more openness and transparency um, I think also even within that the open and, and openness and transparency I think we actually need to make people feel more confident to just publish what they find um, and and let it be that, oh, this is an interesting finding as opposed to, but you're not showing something positive. Um, this is definitely something I'm going to have to come back to. And I need a guest to discuss this further with perhaps somebody who is in the in the area of meta science or meta research and maybe we can unpack this further so uh, yeah we're going to come back to this topic this is part one which is let's unpack the topic and but dare I say it find more issues <laughs> and then we're going to come back and we're going to have some solution focused discussions and I do think having somebody who is uh, in the meta science meta research area will provide uh, help to provide some more context and solution focused um approaches to this however if you have any questions if you have any solutions please do drop us an email info at mondaysciencepodcast.com or you can send us a dm thanks for joining us this week on the monday science podcast make sure to visit our website uh, details are in the episode description where you can subscribe to make sure that you never miss the show uh, so catch up with you next week bye